and welcome to this episode of Tones and Drones, an ambient music podcast. I'm Jason Miller, and Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3 FM KVLU. Right now, you're listening to a song called In the Beginning from the album Planetary Unfolding by my guest on this episode of the podcast, Michael Stearns. The album has recently been remastered and reissued. It originally was from 1981 and has been basically out of print since around then. And so we'll be talking about that and also his um, impressive career of uh, fantastic albums and uh, film uh, music and collaboration with other ambient uh, musicians. Uh, In my opinion, he's a legend of the music and it was fantastic to talk to him from his studio and we cover a lot of topics, so um, I hope that you enjoy this. It was really great to um, hear his stories and uh, a lot of the insight that he has gained throughout his life and his career in music. And so, without uh, further ado, as it said, let's cruise on into my conversation with Michael Stearns here on this episode of Tones and Drones. Michael. Hello, Jason. Hello. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's, uh, I've uh, been uh, wanting to get you on the program and uh, talk some tones and drones for a bit. So thanks for doing this. I've been listening to some of your recordings again, and I was, I was kind of looking through um, where I first heard your music and uh, KBLU, uh, you know, we play electronic music and ambient music. We've had hearts of space on the station. And I think the collected uh, works, the ambient textural works albums, I think those are the first times I heard their music on those compilations. Cause when I was listening to this music, any compilation was great to be able to find, especially the hearts of space stuff to be able to get a bit of sampling, you know? And so I was, I was just looking back. I was like, what albums I tried to, what were some of the first albums that I heard? And uh, I think those are the ones. Planetary unfolding, though. This release, this is a, is this a, a considered a re-release or a remaster or? It was re. It's a both. It's a remaster and a re-release. Okay. Um. W- uh, why did you land on that album to that the, to to put it out again and to go back to it, revisit it? Well, it was really uh, Sam, who's the kind of the honcho there at Project Records. Sure. It was kind of, uh, I kind of tossed it into his lap. It's like I've got so many albums uh, from the past and he wanted to, and I guess Project is going to be re-releasing all of them um, over the next two years. And that was his choice as the first one to re-release. And it's probably one of my better known albums. And that's it. Okay. Okay. So, um when you went back to it, uh, do you, do you, um, now in this, this show, a lot of times I get the question is that there's not a lot listening to your back catalog. Um, so do you listen to your back catalog 
sometimes you know, or, or not. <laughs> I, I'm this strange guy. I know a lot of my friends who are composers. Uh, when they when they come out with a new album or whatever, they often listen to that album for like six months afterwards or for okay. quite a while. Okay. And for me, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's because my life changes so quickly. There's so much going on. Um, you know, I usually don't listen to anything after I finish mixing it. I mean, literally, I don't listen to it at all. I mean, the last couple of albums I've done have been uh, collaborations, one with Steve and one, Steve Roach, and one with Eric Wallow. And uh, I haven't gone back and listened to either since I finished okay. them. <laughs> okay. Sam sent me the album with, with Eric with Eric Wallow, he'd been on the program and he sent me a, a copy of that one because we didn't have that one. So I listened to that one, to that one recently, but I, I understand. I, you know, is it, it's just, uh, you know, there's always new music to be made, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, we're, as human beings, we're changing all the time. So for me, music is kind of, the music that we create is kind of a metaphor for where we're at at the moment that we're creating it. Mm -hmm. And I'm never at the same place. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always changing. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it sometimes uh, it is sometimes. Well, that, no, that's that's, you know, I, I, yeah, I understand that, you know, because it's like that's just kind of a time capsule, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it acts as a time. It acts as a time castle. You know, sometimes if I if I'm doing something, say I'm taking a walk in the same place and it's you know, it's a pretty day, I might stop and and, you know, in the same place like I'm on this campus and I might stop and think, where would I have been? on this Friday, you know, uh, about to leave the campus or something, you know, five years ago, you know, yeah. and when you do that, you realize how many things have changed and also how many things have stayed the same, or at least yeah. good things that have stayed positive things that have stayed the same, I guess, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, kind of a, a little time, time marking. Yeah. yeah. Music is like that. You know what I found in my life, and I see this in everybody all around me, um, is that at some point I'll listen to a piece of music and it'll be, it'll move me on many different levels, um, you know, feeling wise, emotionally wise, and may create all kinds of memories, whatever. And then, you know, five years down the road, I'll listen to the same piece of music and go, huh, wonder what that was about. <laughs> okay. And I've also I've also noticed that there's music that I can't relate to at all. And then three years down the road, it's the best thing I ever heard. It's like, how did I miss this? <laughs> so it really is about time, you know, it's about timing and that space between who we think we are and who we're going to become and who we were. Yeah, and and uh it seems like your music has approached a lot of different, um, a lot of different areas, a lot of different spaces besides space. You know, I, because I, I was looking, I, I was also looking. I was like, well, I remember the the Kiva album, and I remember Desert Solitaire albums. I remember those because we had a lot of the the Hearts of Space and 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 related labels and stuff like that. And uh, and and it's like, uh, I, it, it, does some of your collaborators do they 
they bring you to different places. I mean, especially speaking about Steve Roach and, and what his music evokes or Eric Wolo, what his music evokes. Their music have a certain, you know, place that they go to. I mean, Steve's always gives me that, you know, kind of quality of the expanse of the desert a lot of times, but then he also goes into outer space a lot. You know, I remember the uh, Magnificent Void album that he did, you know, Do those collaborations, you know, help take you on a journey and being able to work with some of these musicians that are known for, you know, different, um, different spaces they explore, different textual things, different instruments that they are known to utilize? Well, sure. Um, I mean, Steve and I go way back. Uh, we're both old old guys. We go back 40 years to when we lived across the street from each other in, uh, in L.A. He lived in Culver City on one side of Venice Boulevard, and I, I lived literally two or three blocks away on the other side of Venice Boulevard in... Um, in an area called Palms. So we have, you know, we have roots that go way back. Uh, he and I uh, did a trip across the, uh, the southwestern United States. At the time, I had a cabin in, in Utah. So we traveled to the cabin and we went through Bryce Canyon and Zion Canyon. We spent a lot of time out in the, in the, uh, in the open spaces. And, I, you know, and he lives still in the open spaces south of Tucson. And I live here uh, just a bit north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. So we're both okay. kind of from the same uh, physical surroundings. Uh, you know, I'm higher in altitude, but I grew up in Tucson. I lived in Tucson. I moved to Tucson when I was seven years old. So I know that area where Steve lives intimately. And Ron Sunsinger, I met him here. So he lives in this special, this kind of space. So for Ron and Steve and I, I think... There's something in our music that is about exploring what it means to live in the physical space and in the spiritual space that we are surrounded and enveloped in all the time. I mean, Santa Fe is in the middle of seven Pueblos, uh, Native American Pueblos. So there's a certain sense of connection to the land and to spirituality and to ceremony and ritual that comes with this living in this space. Uh, whereas Eric lives on an island in Norway, <laughs> in the south end of Norway. And uh, Eric and I met at a um, music festival that we were headlining in Belgium um, outside of Brussels. Uh, in two, that was the very, I think it was December 2018. And I didn't... My wife knew all about Eric's music, but I really didn't know anything about his music at all. And I was really impressed with his performance. And I guess he was impressed with mine. And we were having dinner uh, the next night. And my wife said, hey, why don't you guys do an album together? <laughs> and we said, yeah, cool. So we did. And that's what uh, the Convergence album was all about.
I had been to Norway. I've been trekking in the fjords, and so I know a little bit about the physicality of Norway, which is just absolutely incredible. It's an amazing place, completely the opposite of the American Southwest. I mean, but so deep and so profound. And, you know, you can just kind of, I remember sitting, uh, I was, I was trekking in the, in, in between fjords and there there's no trails because it's all like, uh, ice, you know, it's all rock. And so there are these cairns, which are these rock monoliths that stick up. And so, and people build them. And so when you want to go from point A to point B, you look around the horizon and then you find a cairn, which is sticking up. So you go straight to the cairn. When you get to that one, you look on the horizon and you see the next one. And then you go to that one. <laughs> and as opposed to the Southwest, where it's all about trails, you yeah. know, um, in between the, in the forest or the desert or wherever you're following the trail, the Sendero. So, you know, I, Eric and I really connected and I love the album we did together. And I don't know, I mean, to me, it's a mystery how all this happens, but it's a wonderful mystery because you never know how it's going to unfold. I mean, the album that Steve and I did together, we hadn't done an album since Desert Solitaire, which was, okay. you know, yeah. 40 years ago. And then yeah. suddenly we did uh, Beyond Earth and Sky and we kind of went back to our roots and and that's what emerged. But it's like we didn't say, OK, we're going to do you know, this piece about this place or this piece about this thing. We just, Steve came into the studio. He was performing here in Santa Fe. He asked me to come play with him, which I did for the performance. And then afterwards, he stayed here at the house for a week. And uh, and we just came into my studio every day and we recorded for a week. And that's kind of, but we didn't know what we were going to record. <laughs> we just sat down at our instruments and that's what emerged.
beyond earth and sky emerged out of that. So it's a mystery to me and it's a wonderful mystery. And if you try and pin it down, I think you're kind of losing the point of a lot of it. The, the music that I do or Steve does or Eric does or so many other composers is more of a context to explore what it means to be human as opposed to listening to rock and roll or country western or classical music where it's more of a specific genre um you know when you look at at music in general popular music you know forgive me if i'm going on and on here but no no, no, no please as you're listening to to popular music if you're really paying attention what you hear is that the themes are are the same themes are being repeated over and over again it's like you know, I lost my sweetheart, or I've got a new sweetheart, or my dog died yesterday, or, you know, I'm on hard times, or I'm on good times, or whatever it is. These are stories that the music, popular music that we listen to, recreate over and over and over again. So as people are driving down the highway, listening to their radios, or sitting at home, cooking a meal, listening to this, this, you know, more popular music, the same stories are being repeated over and over again. So it's no wonder that we see those same stories being repeated over and over again in the world that we live in. But the wonderful thing that I find about this mystery of whether it's Steve and I working together or Ron and I or or somebody completely different but exploring these realms is that they there really isn't, you know, you call it new age music, you can call it atmospheric music, ambient music, whatever those words are pointing towards or meaning. But what we're doing is creating a musical context, which is not the popular music context, which means it's a mystery. Who are we as human beings? Well, that's a mystery. I mean, we can keep going on and on in the way that our culture continues to perpetuate itself. Or as individuals, we can wake up and discover that it might mean something else to be human rather than <laughs> I lost my baby yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, no, it does. It does make sense. It, and there's so many different components to, to why, but well, there's comfort, there's comfort in the mystery. You know, I find there's comfort in the mystery that everything isn't figured out yet. I do you know, too. I love that about it. You, you know, know it, it does. Like, and you know, it's like I I'm Catholic, and they say the mysteries of mystery of faith, and it's good to have mysteries in faith that it's all not figured out, it's all not lined up. And some people admit that it is, and some people will be will take comfort in the mystery, right? Yeah. The mis- mysterium, you know. And yeah. but but when you when you mention that about about the narratives in 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 in, in different popular genres, I mean they're they're telling you. One of the things that I've always found interesting is they'll tell you, they're telling you this narrative, like you mentioned the story that they, they wrote. And then you might have an artist that has some more obtuse lyrics and they say, well, I don't want to say anything about this song about it. it's open to interpretation. You know what it is. Mm-hmm. I was found, always found myself gravitating towards more of that kind of alternative or, 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 or things like that. Right. You know, my favorite Bob Dylan was the stuff that just sounded like nonsense because like, I don't know what to make. I can make up something of this. And then when I got to instrumental music, it took all of that away yeah. where it is completely I can connect on whatever level I want to. And probably the composer's intention is that. 
And, yeah. you know, and it's like, um, I did one of these and somebody was talking about their album being gray ambient. And I was like, all right, well, of course there is. There's probably every shade of ambient besides light and dark, right? Great. I like having, I like that you said it's a gray ambient album because there's probably every color of the spectrum in, in this music. Yeah. And, and, and so, well, and so that I have several questions about that because I, I appreciate the way that you explain that because it, it really fills in a lot of gaps for me and it really, it really clues me into to how you approach approach the music in different ways. How have you seen this music um, from this from when you first started in it? How have you seen it um, evolve, if at all? But I mean, how how have you seen it change over the years? Just being, in my opinion, on the forefront of it, you know. Well, a lot of it has been the shifts that have happened technologically. Okay. In terms of the tools that have been available to us, I mean, you know, composers like myself and Steve and Ron and Eric, it's like we are that whatever that is. I mean, that's if you hear it, it has to come from somebody that that's that's what they're that's who they are, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So a lot for me, a lot of the the. Um, innovation or i mean i don't know quite how to say it the, the capability of exploring new facets of these dimension the mystery of these dimensions that we explore has to do with the evolution of the technology that that we have available uh when when steve and i started we were using these little four track tiac which is a tiac tascam is this manufacturer sure. um this little four track quarter inch reel to reel tape recorders. And we only had four, four tracks that we could record on. So all of our first albums were recorded on four tracks. And so we were very, it was very limited in terms of kind of the level of texture that we were able to create. But nowadays, you know, somebody can buy a looper pedal and go to that level with just a little pedal that costs, you know, $150. And then you can go way beyond that with with, you know, other levels of technology at this point. But, you know, so we've all speaking specifically of Steve and I, because he because I've watched his process grow, as I'm sure he's watched my process grow, is like we've been deeply affected in terms of what we are able to express from ourselves, from the mystery of who we are, by the technology that is available to us. Okay. I mean, you know, when a lot of us, when we get together sure. and talk, we're going, wow, have you heard this synthesizer? And, <laughs> you know, have you heard it plugged into that <laughs> reverb unit? And <laughs> it's really kind of geek talk in a way, you know, but then when we sit down and do what we do, all of that just goes out the window. And it's about whatever it is that's coming through us. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to point to technology as a, you know, not necessarily the driving force, but as a, an, a definitely important adjunct to how we go about doing what we do. And, and you know, the, the dimensions that we're able to explore. But there's the main, I would say the main 
you know, that's the kind of the fun adjunct that we that's outside of us that we love to project into. But the, the main thing is really who we are as human beings. I mean, I'm not the same person that I was 40 years ago when Steve and I first started this. And um, and I'm not the same person who I was 35 years ago or 30 years ago or, or 25 years ago or five years ago. And part of that has to do with the unfolding of who we are as human beings. I mean, you could, I mean, you could see a person is like a plant, you know, they start as a seed and then they become a sprout <laughs> and then they develop their first leaves. And then maybe there's a little blossom here and <laughs> then they bear fruit here. I mean, really human beings are like that too. We, we're constantly evolving and unfolding and there's a mystery with us and you know in terms of who we will become how we will unfold the connections we'll make as human beings with other human beings how that will be reflected creatively how that will be reflected inspirationally i mean uh, you know you could use the word sp spiritual development I kind of hate to use those words, but let's use the word spiritual development. <laughs> so for myself, everything is about spiritual development, everything and everyone. And ev it's all how we're all moving in the direction that we call forward. Um, and sometimes you got to move back to really grasp or take in something so that you can move forward. And, and so Steve and, and Ron Sunsinger and Eric and so many other composers that I know are kind of rooted in our spirituality. I mean, we're, we're constantly experiencing new things and being open to new things. Uh, last year I was, or, oh, excuse me, pre-COVID, two years ago, I was up at a um, feast we have these feast days at the different uh, Native American Pueblos around Santa Fe. And I was invited by a Native American family to come up for their feast day. And the feast day consisted of all of these amazing dances that they were doing. And they, these Native Americans would be in these long lines of men and women. And they would be doing this dance in these lines, moving in different directions. And there would be a count to them. And I was trying to figure out in my mind what was the count? What was the relationship between the numbers of these steps that they were making? And I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. But obviously, they had all been brought up within that lineage and that lineage of spirituality and that, that lineage of their culture. And, and so they knew exactly where they were going to stop and exactly where they were going to start. And there was a significance to it, which I didn't understand. My mind could not grasp it. And this huge thunderstorm came in, gigantic thunder and lightning. This particular um, feast day was in August. And so we all, everybody had to take shelter because it was hailing, <laughs> it was thunder and lightning. So a group of us went into this church, uh, old Hispanic church that is on the Pueblo along with the dancers. So here we are, like maybe 50 or 60 of us Western people in this old church, and the church's old adobe, 
And there are these, not pictographs, those are Native American. Um, there are these pictures that are in the, uh, that are on the walls and on the altar. And these pictures don't look like your traditional Catholic pictures. They look like tarot cards. I mean, these things go back to the 1700s. And here we are in this church with these Native American young people and old people, but they're all dressed up in loincloths with feathers and, and we're all together in this space. And it's just like, wow, what an amazing experience. It's like music, you know. The storm parts and goes away, and I go outside, and stand, and walking next to me is this Kochari, which is the Kocharis are the sacred clowns, the Native American sacred clowns, the Puebloan sacred clowns. And this Kochari comes up to me, and he bumps me really hard in the side. And the thing about the Kochari is they can do anything they want. They're the sacred clowns. And sometimes you'll view what they do as negative, but that's your mind viewing that. And it, because whatever they do always has an amazing outcome. So he bumps me really hard in the side and he starts laughing and he steps back and he says, Hey, did you like that storm we just pulled in? We pulled it in just for you. <laughs> and that just stopped wow. me and my stopped wow. me in my tracks. It's like I had to take that in. It was so powerful. They pulled in a storm just for, you know, just as an energetic for us. You know, yeah. as witnesses to to what was unfolding there, to the depth of their understanding of what it means to be human, which is so different, is such a different episteme than what the Western world thinks is real. Mm. You know, for them, that kind of thing, shape shifting and pulling in storms, and that's just part of their life. It's part of their spiritual heritage, their their lineages. Yeah. So. Ron has had those experiences. Steve has had those experiences. No doubt, Eric and so many others, other, others of us have had these amazingly rich experiences through which we grow and our music grows and we have new things that become a part of us and that can be expressed through our unfolding, through our music, through the mystery of it all. So, um, you know, I don't remember what your question was, but that's my version of the answer. <laughs> I appreciate your inversion of the answer. Sacred, sacred clowns. So when he, when he bumped into you and told you that, if you wouldn't have had that, um, that affirmation as you were in the church, you know, he, he could have given it to you then, but then he gave it to you in, in an enriched way because you had that feeling when you were there. And then he told you that and you got another take on it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he could have awakened that in that moment of the bump if you didn't, but it enhanced it that you did already before in a different way. That's yeah. fast. That's fascinating. Yeah. The sacred clowns. I've never heard that before. Sacred yeah. clowns. 
My first, uh, huh. I, I'd, I'd read, I'd heard about them for years, but my first experience with them was was when I moved to New Mexico from Los Angeles, which was 30 years ago. I uh, I was invited to the feast day up at the Taos Pueblo. Taos is a, a uh, town that's about an hour and a half north of Santa Fe. Um, and there's a large Pueblo there, and they had a wonderful feast day with a, a pole with a sheep at the top. I mean, I, I can't even go into all the details of it, but the the Kasharis there were really, they were intense. I watched, there's a creek that runs right through the, the Pueblo, and there were these these young kids that were kind of playing around. I mean, they were not that young. They were like, Oh, 10 to 13, maybe in that age. And they were playing around and it was kind of inappropriate. They were, they were not holding the space for what was going on in terms of the ceremony and the, in the, in the ritual space of this feast day. And one of the Kocharis, man, this fierce looking dude. And I mean, they're all made up and this guy had black and white stripes up and down his body and feathers hanging off of his ears. And he goes running up to one of these kids and he picks him up. And he throws him off this little footbridge that goes over the creek into this icy cold snow melt water. And it just totally broke up that energy for those kids, just completely dispersed mm. it. So, and they all got how inappropriate it was. Mm. So, you know, their, um, their, their energy or the way they interact with everybody is the word I would use is ambivalent. It's not positive or negative. Mm -hmm. It's there to bring things into alignment with what's going on mm. on, on, on a okay. deeper level. Okay. That is, so those, are, those are the Kocharis. I mean, they're, they're how they're selected. I have no idea from, you know, mm -hmm. tribal members, but I think it's uh it's a very powerful and potent, um, they're, they're kind of like the police. <laughs> I hate to use that term. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, you get that. I, that come to my mind too, but that, but they're not, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're there to provide order, but they do it in a very specific and old yeah. and unique way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with that, with, with the, um, with the, um, the, the, uh, the Pueblo or, or, do the Pueblos still, are they, I mean, cause I always have that fascinating image. I, I, I remember learning about that even young built into the, into the rocks, you know, built into the, to the sides of the cliffs. It's just fascinating. I mean, well, it, those it, actually, they they don't do that. I mean, those are that's the, the older, the, the, the Anasazi here. I mean, you see that in Africa too, in certain places, Namibia and, uh, but it's, you know, building that, what we call the cliff dwellings. Um, which is like Mesa Verde. Um, okay. Chaco Canyon doesn't really, Chaco Canyon is the place that I've spent most of my time in because I've been involved with some of the archaeoastronomers and, uh, and also the native elders there are, are in that area from Acoma and uh, Laguna Pueblo and Zuni. But the um, Chaco doesn't have any real cliff dwellings. It's, it's these, these, uh, grand houses that are built in the canyon itself with mm -hmm. kivas and but they're built with walls and you know they say that pueblo benito at one point was four stories high so they were they were magnificent structures some of them look more like mesoamerican structures because the, we know now that the 
Mesoamericans came up from, uh, you know, Mexico and Yucatan, and uh, and there were trade routes that were going on. And Chaco was a spiritual center. So, yeah, they're not really cliff dwellings, but the cliff dwellings are here everywhere that you can go visit, especially in the Colorado Plateau. Um, powerful. I mean, it's amazing how those the people were living at that time. And yeah. uh, anyway, yeah. the pueblos yeah. these days are are um, adobe, okay, and they're multi-storied, multi-tiered, uh, just in terms of their architecture. Okay, yeah, I would I would love to be able to visit those areas. I mean, it's just it just seems fascinating and 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 fantastic on a lot of different levels. I um. What the uh, arco astronomy? I never heard of it. Archaeo astronomy. Archaeo it's, li- it's linking uh, archaeology and astronomy because, for instance, uh, Chaco Canyon, uh, all of the buildings have astronomical alignments. Um, you know, in, in Chaco Canyon, have you heard about the sun dagger? Do you know anything about the sun dagger? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's a butte. It's called uh, Fajada Butte, and it's kind of in the middle. It's where where one edge of the canyon has eroded away and left this butte. And up at the top of the butte, uh, in 1977, Anna Sofer, who's an archaeoastronomer, discovered these three huge megalithic slabs that were like, they looked like they were placed there. And then she stuck her head behind them and she found this big spiral. And she happened to be there on the solstice and she saw that the a shaft of sunlight created a dagger. It's called a sun dagger. And it was going right through the center of this uh, 19-armed spiral. And so, and then she went back, she filmed it. She went back and discovered that there are these two little spirals on the side. And then these little light arrows go through those on the equinoxes. And that the main spiral has two uh, light daggers that go on either side of it at the winter solstice. And then farther down the line, she discovered that actually where the full moon shadow fell across the spiral marked where the moon is in its 18 and a half year cycle from its lunar solstice to solstice, so to speak, where it's where it's the highest on one horizon and then the lowest. So all of these things were there in this kind of solar calendar, and and the as I said, the, the like Pueblo Benito, the one of the the front wall is in alignment to the shadow of the sum where the sh- summer solstice falls. So they were they were in tune, and probably using the celestial events and the Venus cycle. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I mean, you could talk for hours about this but they 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 reflect they're reflected in the ceremony and the ritual that they did and the power that they held in those ceremonies and rituals and also in the planting cycles in other words how do you know when you should plant the first seed and and what does that mean to you whether if it's in yucatan where corn came from it's like how do you know when to plant the first corn seed so that it's going to be able to be harvested at the the best time. So it's like, well, you have to know where you are in the solar cycle in order to do that. So you know, you know, you count days or you count months or however that works. Um, 
the Mayan who had the same, as I understand it, had the same calendrics as the Anasazi here in the Southwest, they had something called a caracol. I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it looks like a big spiral seashell. Okay. And uh, so, so they had observation points on that. So they could tell the exact moment or the exact time of the summer solstice at the same time that the Yanisazi could tell. But they, they were planting, and they were both planting corn because corn had been brought up at that point from, um, from Yucatan and spread in other, into other parts of the United, what we call the United States now. But, you know, so they knew, and they, and they, they had a, they have, still have, what they call a sacred calendar, which is based on 13 days, 13-day, uh, what they call the Tresena, uh, 13 day um, cycles in 20 months. So it's a tw- it's a 260 day cycle, which is based on the corn cycle, the planting of the seed to the harvesting of the corn. It's mm-hmm. also if if women all gave birth exact, it would be the the gestation period of the human fetus in the womb. So it 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 it's a reflection, or it is tied into this university university universality of this cycle that goes on. And that was going on here in New Mexico and in Yucatan and probably in Missouri. And, it, you know, anywhere that the calendrics were similar, it would be tied into this particular cycle. So archaeoastronomy, to get back to your question, has to do with uh, astronomical events, whether it's um, Venus played a very important part in terms of of when it would rise and set in its relationship to the moon. Uh, so all of these things are studied by archaeoastronomers and, and how they're reflected in the native cultures, the earlier native cultures, and the current ones too, um, as opposed to archaeology, which is specifically about the exploration of, you know, archaeology as a reflection of who humans were at the time that that archaeology was built. Sure, sure. We're like kind of just, off the track here yeah, for music, but yeah, I'm loving it. We're that, in a good space. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm glad you are, Michael, because that's what this we we this what happens here. So I'm glad you're embracing it. Thank you for that. So yeah, yeah archaeology based on just follow, finding tools and things of that. This has to do with the with the celestial events. I I find that amazing how they it was it had such specific things that it dealt with as far as life. I I I, just, I love that so much. Nowadays, you see that, you know, there'll be some kind of, you know, uh, kind of ambiguous, you know, moon celebration thing that nothing's really tied to it. And I, I just appreciate their, the science of it, for lack of a better word, the, that, that they use it in such a, a practical and, and, um, and, and specific way. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but that's what they had to do to be able to to survive. It's, well, they had no electric. Yeah. They had no electric lights. They had no uh, running water. I mean, you know, the creek was their running water, and the the fire at night, except for the full moon, that was their electric light, or that was their source of light, light. at night. Yeah. And of course, there. Anytime you're living in an environment like that, your your perceptions become more enhanced than they are. You know, if we go outside at night and there's no full moon and there's no street lights or something, we're kind of blind stumbling around. Yeah. But those folks, you know, it'd be like uh, someone who is 
blind. Um, you know, somebody like Stevie Wonder. Let's just take Stevie Wonder. Sure. He's he's blind, but he he was he has been able to develop his sense of hearing to a point that's uncanny. I mean, I've read stories about you know about him and somebody coming to visit and bringing their girlfriend, and the girlfriend didn't even you know just stepped into the room, and Stevie would say, "Well, who's that blonde girl that you brought with you?" You know, and he can't see, but his something about his level of sensitivity and his hearing has been developed because he can't see mm. to a level that most of us would find totally astounding. When I was about 12, okay, when I was about 12, I grew up in Tucson. I think I told you that. I used to like to go to movies. I guess that's why I I like to make music for movies. Cool. Um, yeah. But I used to go to movies all by myself. I got my mom to show me which buses I had to take to get to downtown Tucson because the only movie theaters were in downtown Tucson, and they were the, kind of the old Art Deco kind of movie theaters. Mm. And I would go down and I watch these Japanese animation films like Godzilla and Gamera, and and I just love to go do that on my own. And one time I went down, there was a, a bus stop about a block away, and that's where I would catch the first bus. And uh, and I, got, I was sitting in the bus the bus stop, sitting on the bench. And a blind person came up to me and uh, or came up and sat down on the bench. He, you know, he came up with his white cane and he was tapping it as he walked along. And when he got to the bench, he turned and he sat right next to me. And I, I didn't say anything. I was 12 and it was just like, whoa, this is this guy just walked up. He can't see and he sat right next to me. Then the bus pulls up, the doors open. And, you know, in my impetuous self, I get in and put my quarter or 10 cents or whatever it was at that time. And I go in and I, there's a, a, a bench seat right behind the driver. And I just sit down in the bench seat mm. and I'm watching the blind guy. He stands in front, front of the door and he's, he's bouncing his cane on the, on the sidewalk in front of the door a couple of times, two or three times. And then he walks in, he puts his quarter in the thing and he turns and he sits right next to me. Just like somebody who could see, just like yeah. we're all losing a beat. And I, I said, how did you do that? And he said, well, he said, I can hear the sound from my cane as it hits the ground. And I can hear the spaces and I can hear where things are. Mm. And so I use the sound to know exactly where I have to go. Yeah. And, you know, I was 12 years old. It blew yeah. my mind. It was like, whoa, yeah. I didn't know you could do that with sound. So these people who were living here, you know, a thousand years ago, their sensitivities, because they didn't have things that we take for granted in modern life, were tuned in such a way that they, you know, they could do things that, that we as modern people could not do simply because we don't have the sensitivity. We haven't developed those sensitivities the way they had to develop them. And I would say that's also true on a spirit, what we would call a spiritual level for them to, you know, a, a lot of their, I was, I'll use this term, spiritual technology was of such a different episteme or different encompassment of what it means to be human and what it means to be spiritual, even though their lives were much shorter than ours, yeah. that they would, they had 
certain what we would call powers um, that that we think are associated with Marvel comic books. <laughs> but we're very, very real to them um, yeah. in terms of, um, you know, if you read, you know, shamanic books or, you know, the Carlos Castaneda works, uh, teachings of Don Juan, his, his whole series. Well, that stuff would be like, you know, that's just the way life was in those days, you know, which, which we've lost all of that, but that doesn't mean even today, there are peoples that, that live that as reality, as opposed to the reality that we live in the Western world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and, um, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't have the reasons to do that unless things change in a drastic way. I think of that even in the Western world, just with technology, coming back to technology. I mean, if all the digital went away, how many of us could go back to the analog easy, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, how could uh, somebody just write something on a notepad or how could somebody um, uh, use a cash register or how yeah. somebody that's always been plugged into a computer, pull out that quarter inch reel to reel or a, or a cassette task game and record their music, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, we lived in an analog in the West world. We lived in an analog to a digital. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't know, there was a lot of things that seemed kind of amazing when digital came out, which you could do. And so I, you know, I, I, that's the only thing I could really equate it to, I guess, as far as our society is concerned is, is a technology, technological advancement, but I like what you said, a spiritual technology. So you, you're talking about how this, their spirituality was, it was that you would you say like it was integrated into so many different facets of their life um for for even just survival yeah oh sure yeah. i mean you know you could take it to the story i told earlier about these dances that were happening at the feast day that i attended and and pulling in this storm i mean there's a certain level of of connection to the natural world and integration with the natural world and alignment of the way you think to the natural world because the natural world is you know doesn't have human thought in it so in a way you could say it's it's human thought which separates things that makes you different from me or makes uh you know this tree different from this tree i mean you know that that tree and that tree they're both it, it's a good thing the the language and and the way it's expressed in thought and vice versa in that we can differentiate these things if we so choose to, but at the same time, we lose a lot of the big picture that those people and, and connection to the larger picture that those people have not lost. Mm. Um, they still live it daily and they did live it. They have lived it. Yeah. Uh, and there's a certain power. I mean, I use the word power. It, it's a certain movement out of connectedness that is possible when you when you not it's not that you realize that you are a part of it i mean that's one thing the realization of it but that you're actually living as a part of it as a part of whatever this is that we call reality <laughs> <laughs> yes whatever we call it a mystery there yeah. there's a mystery how about the music of the tribes? 
Well, like has that has most that, people you know, most people know. hear it and they and they just run away screaming practically because they just don't have any relationship to it. I find it very powerful. There's a radio station here, KUNM, which has um, the, the, it's more than an hour. It's uh, it's several hours of Native American music, mostly now not mostly from the pueblos around here, but from all of Western Native American culture. And, uh, and it's, it's like, if you're not, if you haven't been integrated or you're not used to, or you haven't been introduced to music in that way, it's like, it's very hard to listen to. It's mm -hmm. kind of like Ravi Shankar had to, I don't know if you ever seen the original Monterey pop. Festival. I have, he, it's my favorite part is when he plays at yeah. the end. Yeah, yeah. Like the 10 minutes or so they let him play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, he yeah. kind of. He broke the barrier. He introduced uh, East Indian music to our culture. And it's like the counterculture at that time, the hippies, the people who would go to those kinds of concerts and hear Jimi Hendrix or Ravi Shankar. It's like they had been, you know, with the help of certain psychotropic substances. Sure. They had been opening to what it means to be human or a part of the world on a larger level then you know working and there's no negativity to this but working as a bank teller and going to sunday school <laughs> it's like sure. you're open to it, you know and i have to say there's a participation there that opened this culture to to something greater to what it means to be human and when ravi shankar sat down and performed at the monterey pop festival i mean wow you know, in the in the movie, it's not just him playing; it's these visual pans of people's faces, yeah, in the audience. And they got cutaways of like Janis Joplin and Mickey yeah. Dolenz from the Monkees and stuff. So they were real; they were real keen on finding other musicians who were there too. Yeah, yeah, and and but the expressions on their faces of like, it's like, wow, where's this been all my life? Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that realization that other countries have music of their own too. Every yeah. single country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, the yeah, it I, that that it, it's a really interesting to think. What a what a um, what a touchstone moment of integrating our, our music from another place coming here that was completely different. I know, I know. Nowadays, well, you know, there, there's you have access to world music. You can find every you can listen to music from every country, but um, yeah, Ravi Shankar being there. Yeah, that's true. And he'd already made music at that time for like decades, you oh, know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then he, you know, when he landed there though, in that particular era, you know, what a, what a, what a, um, what a, what a mark that made, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the, uh, so like the, the, so native American music of, of different varieties. Um, how would you say it influenced your music? Well, that's uh, really hard to say. Uh, I think my music prob probably has been, hold on, let me just, my son calling in, let me just mute this. Um, I think it probably has been more influenced, uh, how can I put it? More influenced by, yeah, I don't even know how to articulate it. 
It's definitely has been influenced by mm -hmm. Native American music. I would say from all the Americas, South America, Central America, North America, and then definitely uh, Asian uh, music. It's been, mm -hmm. you know, East Indian music, mm -hmm. uh, per particularly East Indian percussion. I mean, there's a whole piece that I built up on the album with Eric Wallow called uh, The Herald. And, and I built the whole percussion thing, including the big thing in the middle, the big crescendo. It's all East Indian percussion. And so, um, you know, and then there's been stuff from my, I've been really, one of the other things that I've done is I've spent a lot of time recording in nature, in um, rainforests in Central and South America and um, South, South, Southern Asia, uh, Thailand, Bali, Indonesia, uh, which is, Bali is an island in Indonesia, but uh, in Korea and in Japan. I mean, I kind of traveled, I really, except for Africa, I've really traveled all around the world recording nat natural ambiences and music, different cultural musics. And some of it I have woven into my music. Some of it I've been moved by, whether it's the monkey chant uh, from Bali, what they call the Ketchak, uh, or uh, that the performance I did for the uh, SoundQuest Festival that Steve produced, uh, one part of it I did on the modular synthesizer. And in the background of that, I had a full moon ceremony that was being conducted by a Mayan shaman that was playing that I had composed the music to. Okay. That was on so, the screen. That was on the screen, right? Yeah. That was on the screen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, and there have been a number of people, like there's a piece from the um, the Lost World album where I went down with a, a fellow who's a Guatemalan shaman, a good friend of mine, and we we climbed uh, Roraima Tapui in the Lost World in Venezuela, the very southern part of Venezuela where it borders with Brazil. And, uh, and we found some singing stones, which Ron Sunsinger and I had done a few years before where we traveled around the Southwest recording these stones that different Native American cultures had used ceremonially that ring when you strike them. And uh, Miguel and I, um, my friend from Guatemala who lives in Los Angeles, <laughs> he's an interesting guy because he's a shaman and he's also has been the head dialogue editor on Star Trek. Wow. Um, cool. So he kind of has a he has a okay. foot in both worlds. But we okay. we climbed Roraima Tapui together, and um, and and I recorded. Uh, oh, we then we went out. And we we stayed in this this with the uh, Warao Indians at the the mouth of the Orinoco River, where it um, goes out into the um, ocean and we were staying in this this i don't know what you would call it well you call it a, a hut or something but it was all made out of bamboo and it was on poles up above the river so the river was flowing underneath us it was all rainforest on one side of us all river on the other side of us and we were in this bamboo thing that was up raised above the win winter river so when you had to take a shit you just went over to this place where there was a hole in the boards and you shit straight down into the river <laughs> <laughs> so one morning miguel and i got up early before dawn and we got in this dugout canoe which was really shallow and i laid on my back in it with 
this little recording setup I had and he paddled and we went way back because at this point the river goes way back into the rainforest. There's no earth. It's all river and these giant rainforest trees. And we just, I just lay on my back and he slowly paddled around and I recorded this whole, this whole beautiful ambience with, with a macaw and frogs and you know, different insects right at dawn as everything was waking up. And then that became this piece on the album. Um, what was it called? St. Francis. That's what it was called, St. Francis. And uh, so, you know, I've, 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 I've used a lot of things that I've recorded, whether they're, you know, musics or ceremonies that human beings have created or the world of the the natural world that we live in. Um, a lot of that has been woven into different pieces of my music. Okay. It goes all the way back to 1979 okay. when I was in Mexico in the little village of Yalapa, staying in the little village of Yalapa. And I got up one morning and recorded all of these school kids on their way to this, this uh, little Palapa school back in the, back from the ocean in the middle of the jungle. And, uh, and that became a big part of uh, Morning Jewel, Morning, which was the second album that I created. And that was 1979. So I've been doing it for a while. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's that's incredible. They say you got this, uh, this log of field recordings of, of all kinds of varieties. When you when you put them in there, it's like you you're you're building around it. Right. Yeah. You're adding yeah. things to it and it can be as noticeable or not noticeable, I guess. Right. As far as how you put it as a texture or a context or a or an, uh, an ambiance and in, in the music. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to plug it in like that. Yeah, however it works. Sometimes you write the music first, and then uh, you add the um, the you know the the soundscapes later. Or sometimes you're inspired by the soundscapes and you're playing them and you're writing music along with them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. there are no rules. That's the other thing I love about whatever it is I'm doing that people call music is that there's no rules. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I people want to people say. They call me and they want to study with me or whatever. And I just say, well, what do you want to study? And they say, well, I, I, we want to learn how you do what you do. And I just say, well, there's no rules. You don't need to come see me. Just sit down at something and don't let there be any rules and it'll happen. You know, <laughs> oh, it's, I, you know, I, I always appreciate that so much. I mean, because even even if you study music, it's like, it's always been said you study it you study the rules and then you forget the rules you know it's there's like a bruce lee thing where it's like you learn you, you learn the form or whatever forget the form you yeah. know learn the form forget the form learn the rules forget the rules it's like it just you know because there's a some point depending on the kind of music that you're doing that they don't matter so, they don't so, matter yeah unfortunately people usually don't forget the rules but that's true they don't know, they usually the rules become so ingrained. All they do is play the rules over and over again. But uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's quite financially profitable for some of them, you know, of but, course, you yeah. know, yeah. when uh, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask a bit about um, about the. Um, so I'm not going to ask process questions because there's no rules. So I can't just like how you go the songs because it's like things just happen. They do. They just happen. And um, but coming back to what you said about 
Um, Because I I enjoy when this topic finds its way into a conversation about watching the about watching movies and and enjoying writing for movies. Uh, And and I've seen Kronos, but I need to watch more of these film soundtracks when I looked at your your discography film soundtracks. So when the opportunity comes up, how does that present itself to you? There might be some there might be some parameters involved. It, 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 it presents yeah. itself in many different yeah. ways. Kronos was the first of three movies that I've done for uh, director Ron Fricke and producer okay. Mark Magidson. Okay. Uh, the second one was Baraka and the third one was Samsara. Okay. And what I appreciate about those movies is that they're in this genre that's called nonverbal films, okay. which uh, Koyana Scotsi was Koyana one of the first mm-hmm. films that uh, kind of broke, you know, broke the ice and made that something that people were aware of. And the wonderful thing about those films is that there's nobody in the film telling you what you're supposed to feel or what the, um, what the storyline is. Uh, they just take you to these different places and show you things you'd never see unless you were watching them on the screen. And then, what does it mean to you? What are you talking about to yourself mm-hmm. when you're watching that? It's like everybody in the theater has got a different story going on. Yeah. And that's that's relative to who they are and what they've experienced in this life or the mysteries they've experienced or, or the horror they've experienced or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Everybody and that's what I like about those films. That that was an interesting progression because for Kronos, the one that you spoke about earlier. Um, they, it was an IMAX film originally and they, that's when I first met Ron and, uh, and Mark and Ron talked to me about the film, but they hadn't shot any of it. They just, he just talked to me about what it was going to be like. And then he and, uh, the rest of the crew left to go travel around the world to shoot the film. And he said, I just want you to write the music. And when we come back, we'll edit the picture to your music. And it was like, huh? What? The picture to my music? (laughs) I know. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, that isn't the way it's done usually, though, is it? Well, that's okay. I'll do it that way. Okay. And they they invited me to uh, fly to uh, Egypt to spend a couple of weeks with them while they were filming in Egypt just to get a sense of how they were going about it on a technical level doing the filming. And Egypt was a great place for them to invite me to because there's so many different kinds, different streams of time and life there. You know, you land in a jet plane and then you go into Cairo and you're driving through downtown Cairo and there's so many cars that nobody can move or you move like a foot and then you stop and then you move another foot and you stop and there are everyone's beeping their horn and i said to the driver i said why are they beeping their horns is everybody pissed off at each other mm-hmm. and the driver said no sir he said everybody can hear where everybody else is so we beep our horns kind of like echolocation in dolphins so we know how far away we are from other cars and i said whoa that's <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. That's my, not what horns are for where I come from. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then I look to the left and there's a street that we're passing by and there's another street that's like two blocks away going in the, you know, parallel to our street. 
and there's a herd of camels going down the street. And I'm going, okay, you know, we're not in LA anymore. This is really different here. And then you go to the pyramids and you go into the king's chamber or whatever, and it's like a whole other sense of time. And then you're sitting in the king's chamber and a busload of Japanese tourists come up and then they're talking and they're all pulling out their cameras and they're taking pictures. And then they're there for like five minutes and then they disappear. They go back down and they get on the bus and they go somewhere else. So there's another sense of time and integration and taking things in. So that first trip with them was amazing. And then I spent three, I came back, I spent three months, I wrote 45 minutes worth of music or 50 minutes worth of music in three months. And they came back with the footage and just what Ron said, they edited all the picture to the music. I didn't change a note of the music. I didn't edit the music at all. They used every note of the music and they edited this the whole movie to the music. Okay, that was the first one. That was Kronos. Second one was Baraka. Baraka was a combination of the two. Some, I wrote music, they edited the picture to the music, they put picture up, I wrote music to the picture, okay? okay. Then Samsara, the third one, which was done, finished in 2012, that was all written music to picture. I didn't write any music and then they edited any picture to it. So all th each one had, was a different process. Normally, when you write music to a film, you see the picture and you write the music to the picture. Okay. And if it's a like regular theatrical Hollywood type film, you get a lot of direction from the director or the producer or the writer. And like the director might say, you know, the actors didn't quite hit their marks in this scene. Could you sweeten that a little bit with the music? Yeah. So it's really more about, you know, an emotional thread that relates to what's going on emotionally or feeling wise in the picture. Mm. You know, if it's a chase scene, then you got to have chase music, you know, or or a racing scene or whatever. So it's for me that I call that score as opposed actually score. It's, it's a thing of its own and it's a craft. And some people are incredible at the craft and it, some people are so good at the craft, it becomes art, but most of the time it's just craft and it's done in a very similar way to all the movies. And if you go back to movies in the 1940s and hear the difference in that music to the difference in the music that accompanies movies today, you can really hear how that craft has evolved, but how it was very specific to that time. And it's very specific to this time. And 20 or 30 years from now, it's going to be very specific to that time if we all make it that far. We'll sure. see. We'll see. Um, so that, you know, that's a little bit about working to music. Currently, I'm in the middle of a project or music to picture. Currently, I'm in the middle of a project with um, where I'm in the first third of a project with a fractal artist from Amsterdam. And 
I met him. Um, he had a big installation at a gallery in New York City called Artec House all of last year. And it's in, in, uh, uh, it's in one of the boroughs, uh, Chelsea. And it's in the Chelsea market. And it's a gigantic, it was a gigantic installation. And it was these huge 3D landscapes of these moving fractals. And when you walked into the room, the ceiling's like 30 feet high and it's about a 50 foot high wide room and everything is this giant moving fractal oh, and wow. you had to sit down because you couldn't stand up. It totally disoriented you. You'd fall over if you didn't sit down because your nervous system didn't know what to make of these, you know, how do I integrate, you know, this my ears, my inner ear with this giant moving landscape. Man. So he had he had used uh, about 15, 20 minutes of my music for that show from an album called um, Music for the Dome. And that's how he was introduced to my music. And then he, uh, he sent me an email after that project and said, hey, would you like to score this next project I'm doing? I actually write music to the picture. And um, so it's for this... Uh, it's for the largest dome, like a planetarium dome, except that now they do a lot more than planetarium stuff in those domes. Yeah. It's in the largest planetarium in Europe. It's called Experimenta in Germany. And so um, I'm working on that now. He sends me files, and it's all in 3D, giant 3D moving fractals. It's wild. Wow. So yeah. he sends me the files, and I've been writing music to the picture. Yeah, but it's really fun because – how do you describe fractals? It's like you can describe a tree oh. or a, a, a fried egg <laughs> or, yeah. you know, the way you want your hair cut or whatever it is. But how do you describe a fractal? I mean, and fractals yeah. define the mathematics that make up almost everything in our reality. I mean, from the shape of a tree to the shape of a leaf to the edge of a granule of sand, whatever it is, they can be described by fractal geometry, by the mathematics that define fractals. So mm -hmm. we know that fractals are at a level, the visual fractals that we see, yeah, that, yeah. Um, that the rest of what we call reality is an extension of or is, is participating with or whatever. And you see it radically in like uh, Romanesco broccoli. I mean, you look at that and it looks just like any fractal you've seen on a YouTube video. Um, but so anyway, I'm writing music to this. It's a 52 minute long experiential 3D experiential experience in um, this giant planetarium dome in Germany that this guy who's this amazing fractal artist, his name is Julius Horstwies, um, lives in Amsterdam that he's creating. And uh, it's it's cool. It's fun. It's the most fun I've had. Well, let me tell you about the last project I did, which was just as COVID was starting. Have you got time for this? Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Please. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, love, so the, I love fractal pushes. I love that stuff. It's amazing. Okay. It's well, this wasn't fractal. This was um, Ridley Scott, the director who did Alien and a lot sure. of big movies. He started this thing in, in, in 19, was it 2010 that he called Life in a Day, the Life in a Day project. And he created this Life in a Day film where he asked people to go out with their cell phones and film a day in their lives. And then he created this movie called The Life in a Day. And the movie was about 
was all footage that people shot on their cell phones about their life in a day, uh, life in their day. And then he edited the whole thing together so it actually made beautiful sense. And it was this huge hit in Europe and it flopped completely in the United States because we just don't spend money on art films here. We want to yeah. see the Marvel comic book movies. Yeah. So uh, he continued the project with, with another director um, in Europe and they did a film, I think they did a, Italy and then they did it's like France and the UK, something I can't remember, but there were three films they completed. And then in, in uh, 2018, they did Switzerland. And the way they do it is Mike, uh, Michael Steiner was the director of the Swiss film. And so they put Michael Steiner and Ridley Scott was the executive producer. So they, they put him on the cover of the, the big national magazine that comes out daily. And he's, he takes up the whole cover of the magazine. He's pointing right out of the cover towards whoever is reading the magazine. And he's saying, we want you to film a day in your life on your cell phone and send us the video. Okay. Wow. And so okay. thousands of people send the video in. Sure. And then they have, uh, I think they start with like 120 editors and they start to edit down and edit down and edit down the footage until they come up with about three hours of what they feel is the best expression of a life in the day in Switzerland. And then they have a master editor who takes those three hours and turns it into a 90 minute movie. Wow. And they ask me to write the music for, for this thing. Wow. And I'm going, well, how mm. do you do that? I mean, that's like, I've never had a challenge like that before. That's something new. And what's, I can't imagine. It's like, what's it going to look like? So, uh, anyway, I wrote the music and they were really happy with it. And then they flew me to, um, to Hamburg in the northern part of Germany to mix the music in a, on a mixing stage there. And then COVID broke out. And so the project never made it into the head, a whole thing with movie theaters in Europe that where it was going to open. And then it didn't open anywhere. It was, I think you could stream it over, over there. I don't think you could even stream it here in the United States. Um, but at any rate, so that's the project that I did before this one. Then COVID hit, and then I did the album with Eric, and I did the album with Steve because all I could do is sit in the studio and yeah. write music. I couldn't. There were no productions happening out in the world. But so now I'm doing this um, this big fractal project, which is very challenging, but also a lot of fun. Is the music going to be released on its own, or is it going to just be you know combined it combined with the visuals? I think it will be released on its own. I've listened to the music back for the first section, which is I've only completed the music to a quarter of it. Um, it, it won't open until uh, around Christmas uh, next year in Germany at this giant planetarium dome. Okay. Um, but I, I'm, I'm maintaining the rights to the music, so I would hope that it will be released as a CD or possibly I'm looking at releasing things in this uh, the Dolby um format dolby atmos yeah, which most, is being used the atmos yeah yeah it's being used a lot now yeah, and my yeah. studio is set up for 9.1.4 surround mixing because i have to mix and surround for or i have to score and mix and surround for a lot for the movies and i love it it's like once you hear big surround system you just don't want to go back to stereo <laughs> it's the next so, the next level 
it's the next level and it's it's coming i mean i i you know i i have this headphones and i listen to apple music now and there's all this music that's being released in atmos and it's just amazing you know it's incredible and it seems like the new the younger generations are not into speakers so much now they're really listening on earbuds and headphones yeah so i'm kind of wanting to gear new music that i do towards headphones and and earbuds as opposed to speakers yeah yeah i just had a conversation recently on this program about about that from someone that does a lot of mastering and and it was and it was just he was just saying you master on the best that you have and then everything else just kind of goes down as far as like the listening experience by just listening to your phone speakers or or anything like that you know it it's the um uh i remember the quadraphonic system i had a friend that his parents had quadraphonic with the joystick in the room the Mm -hmm. the atmos now when i'd seen the atmos i know some movie theaters are equipped with it right now um some of the bigger ones um there's an aspect of the Atmos that I remember seeing. It was it was on it was a a, a, a YouTube technology guy explaining it. But it, is there there's some point of it where the 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 sound is sent up and kind of trickles down. Is my best way to kind of take it. Like it's 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 pushed upward. Well, you have a you have a, a Z axis in Atmos. A Z so axis. X, yeah. Okay. So X Y. So okay. you know an X axis would be just a line. Okay. X, Y would be normal surround, like 5.1 or 7.1, where you have this plane of surround music. But having the Z axis, X, Y, Z, means you have overhead speakers as well. Okay. So in here, in this room, I have four overhead speakers. I have, I have uh, nine speakers that go around me. So it's, uh, that's the nine. Uh, it's left, center, right. And then it's left side surround, front left side surround rear right side surround front right side surround rear and then rear left rear right and then i have overhead left and right front and then rear left and right front and those are the overhead or they 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 use a t meaning top speaker so atmos is what's called object based um surround as opposed to channel based like 7.15.1 Dolby Stereo, all of those are channel-based Okay. Uh, since they only have to deal with a single plane. But when you get into the Z-axis, uh, Dolby came up with, this, with, with channel-based, which means every sound, you know, instrument uh, in, a, in a mix becomes an object. So you can take that object and you can put it somewhere in static space or you can move that object in static space it's stereo it might be two objects and you can move them like front to rear you can move them like up over your head and then okay, to the okay. rear or you can move them around you in a circle or you can move them up to the ceiling and around in a circle i mean you can do anything that you can do in three-dimensional space with an object wow, wow. so that's what that's what dolby atmos is it's object based it three-dimensional uh uh you know, movie playback or music playback. And it actually translates pretty well to earbuds and headphones if it's engineered correctly through okay. binaural technology. Okay. Um, okay. So basically they have different binaural algorithms which take the Atmos and then they transform it into binaural so that you can hear things maybe about 50 to 70% spatial 
through earbuds or headphones in the same way you would hear them if you had speakers in the room. Mm -hmm. So the way I'm working with this director, mm -hmm. Julius Horsluis, in Amsterdam, because I want him to have a sense, because they're 3D fractals, and the whole the the playback in um, Experimenta for this fractal show is going to be in 30.2 channel surround sound. So you're in a dome, and there's 30 speakers. Each one is an individual channel all around wow. you. So you can move the sound anywhere you want in the dome. I mean, it's just amazing. So what I'm doing is I'm working in the 9.1.4 format in this special software. It's not Dolby Atmos. It's called Spatial Audio Designer so that it will translate into the 30.2 system. And But what I'm doing is I'm mixing the music in through binaural with headphones. So first I mix it on the speakers and get it really cool. <laughs> and then I put on the headphones and I have to do some little tweaks, but it sounds pretty cool in the headphones too. So when I send Julius in Amsterdam the music to listen to in synchronization with his videos, it's in binaural and he gets a sense of the spatiality of the music as opposed to just listening in stereo. Um, so he has some sense of what it might sound like in the dome. Uh, or in my studio, as opposed to just listening, you know, mixing the the music in stereo with two speakers or okay. two headphones. Or two know. headphones, sure, yeah. and just changing the percentage left right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating because uh, to so you're not missing too much of the of if you were in the space having the overhead. The overhead yeah. thing, which you can't get here. Yeah. Well, you get well, you it a little bit. You get there. You get there yeah, a little you, bit. You sure, hear sure. a little bit of yeah. a difference. Like if yeah, you take yeah. the sound from the XY plane and you pan it up to the Z plane. And what I found is if you pan things quickly, you hear it better on headphones than if you do things slowly. Okay, because okay. more slowly. So like uh, there's a sequence in the this first part of the fractal show where you're just shooting through this fractals. And I, I create this uh, kind of like um, uh, Tangerine Dream, uh, Berlin School uh, sequence thing that just gets faster and faster and faster as you're moving through these fractals and you're speeding up, speeding up, speeding up, and then you blast out the end. So as you're speeding up, I have, there are these objects, fractal objects that are zooming by you. And I decided um, there's a sound effects editor who's doing all that kind of sound effects for this project. But I decided I needed to put a few of those in just to give myself the sense of movement. Okay. And okay. so what I found is this, uh, as those things wish by us, it's real, you, it, the, the binaural, you know, sound tracking with headphones or earbuds, you just get the sense of those things wishing by you. It's not just a sound that gets louder and softer in your head, like it would be with stereo, right. but you really hear them going by you. It's really incredible. Mm, wow. Wow. The movement of the sound, the sound yeah. movement. That is yeah. fantastic. Oh, I hope Atmos, uh, it's taking off though, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming. It's, it's totally becoming taking something. off, you know, yeah. all of the like Spotify and all of the major streaming platforms have announced that they're going to have uh, streaming in Atmos. So okay. uh, anybody with headphones or earbuds is going to be able to hear it, you know, in Atmos surround. 
That's incredible. I can't wait till that happens. I mean, it's maybe that most set set up. So, oh, I don't know the home stereo listing. I'm not sure. I don't know where that's going to go. I don't know. It's like they got the tube speakers. I'm not sure. But, you know, at least a good pair of headphones. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, and it won't give you the it won't give you the full speaker experience, but it'll give you a much fuller spatial experience than normal stereo does on headphones. Okay. Okay. And there's these places to visit that are going to have Atmos. And I, I know the multiplexes already have it. So you yeah. can experience it there, you know, yep. and, and, and more, that'll probably take off more and more as that, as that goes, as that goes to it. So I haven't seen you know. Dune in Atmos. I've only seen it in surround, but I have friends in LA who've seen it in Atmos and they say, it's incredible. <laughs> okay. I haven't heard it in Atmos either. Just They go back to right. see it two or three times just because the sound is so incredible. Wow. That was quite a score. That was quite a score. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That one was, that was definitely take note, take note of that one. Oh, I love movie scores. I wanted to ask you a question about my notes because I, I, I appreciate your your time and and everything, but I had a question to ask you and it's about the beam. Okay. Because the beam I've, I've been fascinated by the beam. And when I watched the sound quest, I saw you go over to the beam and um, I'd, I'd heard it before, but I didn't realize that I'd heard it kind of yeah. thing you yeah. know it yeah. was that it was that um how did you acquire one well a friend of mine in la <clears throat> by the name of craig huxley <clears throat> at the time his name was craig hundley there was a fellow in um the beach area uh in venice beach who um had these things he called them the cosmic beams his name is francisco Lupica. And we went to see him perform one night and Francisco has a bunch of them. And he's like, and they're pretty, pretty large, like 12 to 15 to 16 feet long. And, um, and they have these, you know, each one is strung with piano wire and they made, we were just really blown away by the sound. It was so otherworldly and, and incredible. And, and so, we decided, well, Craig decided, let's make some. But instead of making them out of cast iron, which Francisco's were, and you, it takes three or four people to pick them up and move them, sure, let's sure. make them out of extruded aluminum, which mm-hmm. are the, it's the C-beam, what they call extruded aluminum C-beam, which is what they use to reinforce aircraft wings, like 747 wings, things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we did some research and we found out that the, the beam was invented by a guy in Santa Barbara by the name of John Lazelle. And that there were a few people that had a Mickey Hart has a couple and Francisco has a, a group. And uh, so anyway, we built these uh, this friend of ours, Paul A. Bill, built these beams. And uh, Craig has I think he has four of them. And then I have. I, you know, one was plenty for me and mine's 12 feet long. It's got 24 strings. And, um, and of course you have to build a pickup for it too, like a guitar pickup, but you can't buy a pickup. <laughs> oh big. yeah. That's that big. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's basically, uh, I helped Paul build this beam and, uh, and I've had it with me for many years and it, it fills it's like my physical instrument. You know, I'm not sitting here twisting knobs and pushing buttons and playing a keyboard. Mm-hmm. I get to go over to this thing and get really physical with it, as I'm sure you could see in the yeah. in the uh, video for SoundQuest. 
Yeah. Steve and I, I, yeah, I used yeah. it quite a bit on the album he and I did, Beyond Earth and Sky. It's it's in a couple of the pieces. It's in those? Okay. Yeah. I'll have to listen in on it. Yeah, there, there's some there. really um, subtle stuff yeah. I do on it. Like it does, I think I did that, I can't remember, in SoundQuest, I did these really subtle little harmonic sounds to begin with. So it does really delicate little sounds, and then it does these big heavy metal sounds. Yeah, with a powerful slide on it. I mean, I was just wow. That's wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like nothing else. Talk about a unique instrument to it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. Yeah, it's it, um. Uh, well, I guess it was. Yeah, I see that like a contrast. It in the video it was it was a fantastic contrast to being at the synthesizer. Yeah, you know, to 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 go over to go over to it as well and you were playing yeah. some slide guitar in that too right i think i remember uh, not slide guitar, guitar but uh, guitar. Oh. I, was, I played some flutes uh one is a is a mayan replica flute and the other i played was from uh thailand so i started out playing flute and uh and then i moved to guitar That's and i was playing uh i mean just just for people who care, I was playing. I started out playing a Parker, um, and that opened the show. And then the closing of the show, I was playing a twelve-string guitar, a Dan Electro twelve-string guitar. Okay. So that okay. opened kind of op the flute and the guitar opened the show, and then the twelve-string guitar closed closed what I was doing. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was a fantastic performance, and it was it was great to see kind of behind the music a little bit, you know. And I mean. Uh, uh, because uh, you don't always get to to see the process, or the I guess I'd say the performance. I guess more in the process of yeah. of the electronic music, you know, yeah. as much. So yeah, it, I did the uh, I did the one sequence from Samsara too, with the the village life sequence, as I recall, which is a piece that I wrote when I was in L.A. working on that movie Samsara, and then I I kind of recreated it here in the studio. Yeah. The, um, there was a lot. There was a, a wide variety of stuff. Yeah, it was a great. It was a great thing during the time. Also during the time that it came out, you know, with so music, a lot of music having to switch to online, yeah. um, and a lot of artists going online uh, in lieu of concerts or live performance or any or, or things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, so it was. It was a. It was a cool thing that was that was that was organized. I um, I um. Uh, I, I so much appreciate you being on Tones and Drones, and uh, it's it, uh, really an honor to to meet you and be able to to speak with you on the program and 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 just uh, chat a bit here on the show. Yeah, um, it's my I'm, pleasure. I'm glad we were able to kind of sidestep into these other worlds, <laughs> other topics. <laughs> me too. I, that's actually part my favorite part, actually. You know, and you know, it's like okay, so. Um, a musician that uh, that performs in these realms can, can listen to it. So if anything goes into specifics for them, fine. Somebody mm -hmm. that's not that, um, but they 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 love to listen to the music. Okay, fine. Um, and then anything else that comes up. <laughs> so you know it, it, that's kind of the three things to touch on. So not be afraid to get too technical to ask you. You know exactly what synth you're using or exactly what software you're using, and then just you know, all over the place from there. So yeah. it yeah. was just three point, a three point thing. And oh, that's um, great. What a great yeah. three points to have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then the sideline was sometimes if it came up to say, what do you think about, what does a drone mean to you? So mm. we could close with that if you want. What is the, the nature of the drone? 
mean to you? Well, that's a good question. I'm, a lot of people think my music is drone based and some of it is drone based. Mm -hmm. And for me, a drone is, uh, I mean, you could, okay, you could equate it to East Indian music. Um, you have the sitar, which right. is the lead yeah. instrument, yeah. but then you have the tambura, which mm -hmm. is the drone instrument. Drone. Oh. So you have this uh, constant yeah. one pitch or it's actually a multi-pitch, which kind of creates one root uh, with the um, tambura. But that's, that's if you think about drone music, you could think about East Indian music and the tambura, which is constantly keeping this tone behind everything else. It, it's kind of like the earth or the bed. And then the other instruments can kind of, like the sitar, take off and with all of these embellishments and 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 melodies and of course in east indian music they're playing ragas and the ragas uh it's not uh 12 tone music it's a, that's a whole other thing to get into mm -hmm. the difference between um besides uh 12 tone which we're also used to in western music which was invented by these guys in wigs 300 years ago with uh, for the piano keyboard or the clavier keyboard so that they could modulate octaves equally up and down, which nothing in mother nature does <laughs> and doesn't in other cultures. I mean, you know, uh, anyway, that's boy, I could go down that one for hours. Uh, so, but at any rate, that's, that's a good example of a drone. Yeah. And for myself, I often find drones in my music that are not necessarily a single instrument, which is, creating a, a tone which could also be a drone a tone and a drone could be the same thing actually sure. um but you know it, it's more of a pitch bass that i'll use a pitch bass and there will be music that i will create that is stays in that pitch bass so the pitch bass becomes the drone actually okay okay sure yeah as a foundation yeah 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 and and no, I know what you mean. It, it it it's so many cultures. I mean, it's hurdy gurdies to bagpipes to yeah. Yeah. to the continuo and baroque. Yeah, I mean, bagpipe it's, is it's, another you know, great example of a drone, uh, yeah, a drone based yeah. instrument. You know, and those things are loud. Oh my gosh! Have you ever been in a room or yeah, close to a bagpipe? Oh, they're so loud. They're so loud. I yeah. so loud. I actually, I had a. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I'd love to have you back on the show. And we can explore some of those other dimensions. You know, I, I, sure. I, I, I would really enjoy that and, 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 uh, and, and intersperse some more music uh, in, in the show too. I kind of edit it that way. And, uh, and there's, you know, always more music to, to be able to, to um, intersperse. So, you know, great. thank, thank you for, uh, thank you for being here. It's great to meet you. And uh, yeah, you, please Jason. come back. I, I would love to have you back on the program again. The show's been a labor of love and everybody has been so generous with their time and their information and their, their knowledge and their, uh, their insight. And um, it's just been very enriching. And uh, I hope that uh, you enjoyed the talk. I did very much so. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again to my guests on this episode of Tones and Drones, Michael Stearns. And um, I'd like to let you know right now that you can find out more information about his music by going to his website, michaelstearns.com. Also, for more information on 
the reissue of Planetary Unfolding, you can visit projectrecords.bandcamp.com, and that's uh, spelled P-R-O-J-E-K-T, records.bandcamp.com. We're closing now with another selection from the album Planetary Unfolding, the song called Something's Moving. Also on this episode had some selections from his album The Storm and also his album Sacred Sight, his collaboration with Eric Wolo called Convergence, and also his collaboration with Steve Roach called Beyond Earth and Sky. You can find Tones and Drones on all the major podcast platforms and also on the NPR One app. And so would really appreciate um, if you uh, subscribe to the program and if there's a place to leave a review, um, do so if you wish. Also, you can listen to Tones and Drones Radio, in which I play uh, music from the guests on the podcast, and it airs on KVLU at 10 p.m. Central Time on Sunday evenings. And you can stream 91.3 FM KVLU at kvlu.org. This is Jason Miller. Thanks for listening to Tones and Drones, and may music bring you peace and joy. <laughs>